The Anton Savage Show on News Talk. Now, signed on April 10th, 1998, the Good Friday Agreement was then and remains a remarkable achievement and, of course, brought to end 30 years of armed conflict in the North. But while Northern Ireland has made significant progress towards greater prosperity and a safer and more inclusive society, its future remains uncertain. Jonathan Powell, Chief of Staff to Tony Blair from 97 to 2007, and who, of course, was a key part of the negotiating team during the Good Friday negotiations, joins me now. Good morning, Jonathan. Good morning. Jonathan, before we get to the implications of where we now stand and what Brexit, what damage Brexit has wrought and what the solution might be, can you cast your mind back 25 years? Because in listening to Bertie Ahern talk about the process of the Good Friday Agreement, one of the things that he attributes as a key catalyst to the success was the Blair administration's commitment to achieving a peaceful agreement even when that didn't look like it would be the likely outcome. At any point, did you lose faith that you would get such an outcome? It's interesting. I was looking back at my diaries the other day, and I looked particularly at the diary just before we went to uh, Belfast to do the Good Friday negotiations themselves. And I said that my head told me we wouldn't get to an agreement in the course of that week, but my gut told me we would. So I pointed myself the official optimist and stayed optimistic even when uh, Tony or Alistair Campbell or my other colleagues were sort of on the verge of giving up, that we had to keep going. But really, the credit goes to Tony Blair. He set this as a deadline when he came in as prime minister in May 97. He said he would get this done. He said he would do it within a year. And when the civil service advised him to drop the deadline and it was very dangerous to keep sticking to the deadline, he stuck to it and he used that political momentum, that political capital to get to an agreement. And Jonathan, I know the the answer to why he should care is an obvious one, but why did he care is slightly more subtle? Because from a British prime ministerial perspective back in the mid-90s, it wasn't a vote winner on the, the streets of, of Great Britain. So why did Blair give so much political capital to it? There are precisely no votes uh, for a British prime minister in uh, trying to make peace in Northern Ireland, as John Major discovered. But Tony Blair had decided early on to make Northern Ireland a priority. If you remember when he became leader of the Labour Party, one of the first things he did was to reverse the previous policy of the Labour Party, which was to be a persuader for Irish unification, and appointed Mo Mollem as the Shadow Secretary of State, and instead adopted a policy of bipartisanship, of supporting John Major in everything he did on the peace process, even when we thought sometimes it was wrong, as at the time when they blew up Canary Wharf. But we decided we were going to support in all circumstances. So I think he really decided right back then that if he got to win an election, he would make it a real priority. He'd put political capital into it. I think it's partly to do with his childhood going to Donegal to visit his grandmother, who was a a unionist, an orange member of the Orange Order, um, every summer. Uh, So he was familiar with Northern Ireland. The feeling that having a conflict like this on our islands was just mad in this day and age. And he really committed himself to it. And the amount of time he spent on Northern Ireland during those 10 years is quite extraordinary for a Prime Minister. How difficult a learning curve was it for you? Because the, the complexities of Northern Ireland is not something that is inculcated into British children in um, junior and, and um, senior schools. I've been very, very ignorant, like everyone else in, in, in Britain, about uh, Northern Ireland until I was sent to the embassy in Washington in uh, 1991. Uh, and I'd, um, and my, one of my jobs in the embassy was to make the case up on the hill in Congress on, on Northern Ireland. So um, I was sent over to Northern Ireland and I toured West, West Belfast with a uh, squadron of a bunch of squaddies on patrol um, back in the back of an armoured car and getting out and walking along the streets. And I went around the same streets with a local uh, Catholic clergyman. And seeing the two sides of it like that made me kind of 
aware quite quickly uh, what the issues were. And I became a little bit addicted to it and would go back there as often as I could uh, as part of my sort of briefing when I came back from Washington, etc. And then I'd looked after unionist politicians uh, going to Washington, going up on the hill and making the case. So I was by no means an expert. In fact, in some ways, the fact that Tony Blair and I were both pretty ignorant about Northern Ireland was an advantage because if we had any idea how difficult it was, I don't think we'd have touched it with a barge pole. I read a thing that you wrote post the last election or the, the election wherein Sinn Féin got the majority and you, you quoted David Trimble as having said to you that he expected Northern Irish politics to become less sectarian and norm, more normal, broken down a left-right rather than a, a green-orange divide. Now, 25 years on, would you have had uh, an expectation that we would be much further down that process than we currently are? When David Trimble said that to me, which was really quite soon after the Good Friday Agreement, I thought he was probably right. And I think that's one of the reasons he then went on and joined the Conservative Party. I thought, I think that's what he thought would happen. And I would have shared that view. And it didn't. Uh, We stayed with the sectarian parties. Although what's interesting is what's changed relatively recently with the growth of the Alliance Party, that wedge in the middle that's neither unionist nor nationalist, which is growing. And the um, census just recently showed the same thing, people who don't define themselves as unionist or nationalist. So I think it is happening now. It's just happening much later than one would think uh, and in a slightly different way. And how damaging has has Brexit been? I've spoken, you mentioned Alistair Campbell earlier on, I've spoken to Alistair about it and he seethes at what he sees as the damage that Brexit has wrought in the peace process and the development of Northern Ireland. Do you share that that sense, that sentiment? Absolutely. You know, Brexit was catastrophic, the approach we'd taken to peace in Northern Ireland, as John Major and Tony Blair both pointed out in 2016 in the referendum on uh, uh, on Brexit, and they went to Belfast and made this case that if uh, we left the customs union, if we left the single market, there would have to be a border somewhere. The border could be on the island of Ireland or on the Irish Sea. If it's on the island of Ireland, it would have caused a massive problem for the Good Friday Agreement. It would have been very, very difficult to sustain it because the whole point of the Good Friday Agreement was that we couldn't solve the difference of opinion about a United Kingdom or United Ireland. But because the border was so permeable, uh, people could live in Northern Ireland and feel Irish, or they could feel British, or they could feel both. That issue of identity became less salient, less um, uh, less important in politics. And the idea was to make politics in Northern Ireland boring, so people could talk about education, about health, about uh, wood chips if necessary, but not about identity, and not, above all, to use violence to pursue their ends. So by uh, the trouble with Brexit is what it's done is it's brought that issue of identity back again. Now the borders in the Irish Sea, it's the unionists who are protesting against it and who are uh, refusing to go back into the institutions because of it. So what Boris Johnson did was frankly just an act of vandalism in the case of Good Friday Agreement, something he really couldn't care less about. And I think he illustrated his ignorance on the point when he said the border between Ireland, North and South was the same as the border between Camden and Islington and London, which of course is nothing like. And of course, when he promised that if there was to be any forms in relation to goods travelling in and out of Northern Ireland in either direction to bring them to him and he would personally tear them up. Yeah, well, now we know that he's a professional at lying. So um, I guess people should have realised that at the time. I'm speaking to Jonathan Powell, Chief of Staff to Tony Blair from 97 to 2007, one of the, the chief negotiators in the Blair administration of the Good Friday Agreement, of course, the 25th anniversary of which is, is soon upon us. Um, Jonathan, as to that 25th anniversary, it does give, I assume, a possibility to reset, to reinvigorate, to uh, plan for a, a brighter future. What do you see the opportunities being on the cusp of the anniversary? Well, I think it is worth reminding people because there's a great deal of ignorance, really, about the Good Friday Agreement. Young people now don't know much about the violence that preceded it, 
or the agreement itself. So I think it is worth reminding people of the alternative course history could have taken. There could be a lot of people who are walking the streets now who would now be dead. So uh, I do think it's important that people remember that. Because one of the things, that's, one of the paradoxes is that um, uh, Ian Paisley and Martin McGuinness, two of the people who played a key role in starting the conflict, were able to sit down at the end of the negotiations and work together and keep the institutions up and running. Uh, but the new generation, who weren't directly involved in the conflict in the same way, maybe children during the conflict, don't seem to be able to sustain the institutions in the same way, I guess because less is at stake, which I suppose is a good thing. But I think it's worth reminding people why we have the Good Friday Agreement, why we have these institutions, and how important it is to get them up and running again. I hope that's the lesson people will take from it. Although, is it a broad lesson that needs to be learned? Surely the only people who need to learn that lesson is the DUP. Well, about the institutions, not necessarily, because remember last time they were pulled down, it was Sinn Féin who pulled them down. Um, so I think it's both sides need to learn the lesson of how important it is. But I hope that in this particular case, the DUP will learn the lesson that uh, they're putting themselves into a complete cul-de-sac if they stay out. Uh, they do need to get back into the institutions. After all, it's paradoxical. It's the unionists who always wanted Stormont. It was never nationalists and republicans. So if unionists pull it down, then the alternative is going to be moving towards the United Ireland. So I do hope that they... Yeah, they're going to want to wait, I suppose, till after the local elections. But I hope they will then uh, realise that that political dead end is really disastrous for them and is a real problem for unionists and they will go back into the institutions. You spoke a little about the impact of, of uh, Brexit and the creation of all the issues around the Northern Ireland Protocol. Is there a similar impact in relation to not just the issue of trades and important, uh, trade and import and export, but the membership of the European Union generally, because there was a huge amount of interreg and peace and re- reconciliation funding that flowed into Northern Ireland off the back of the peace process from the EU. And there was the common membership of a bigger thing beyond the UK and Ireland. There was common law through uh, EU-derived legislation. In the absence of that, does it further division? Does it, does it sow the seeds of a return to where we were before that? I'm not sure that it does. I mean, it's regrettable for the whole of the United Kingdom. And I heard someone the other day making the point that, I think it was Bertie actually making the point that, um, you know, the British and Irish prime ministers would meet all the time at uh, EU functions, at uh, council meetings and so on. And that provided an interaction that was really helpful uh, and keeping relations on, on track. One of the things I most regret about what Boris Johnson did was he managed to trash uh, British-Irish relations, which had been so hard won over such a long period. I mean, I'm glad to say that it's coming back quite quickly because I think it was ad hominem rather than uh, about Britain. But the lack of that uh, EU common um, space, if you like, is a problem for the UK as a whole in Ireland. I think it's less of a problem for Northern Ireland because, of course, Northern Ireland will remain both in the EU and in the UK. So actually, they've got a huge opportunity uh, economically uh, and in most other ways. Ironically pointed out by the um, by Richie Sunak, the the notion that Brexit was being highlighted as it wasn't the great advantage to remain in the EU. There's a certain irony to it, isn't there? <laughs> Complete irony, as a number of people have pointed out to say how lucky the Northern Irish are to remain in the EU and the UK. That's what we had before Brexit. Uh, Jonathan, I, I, you mentioned the regrets uh, that you might have had in respect of, of where the process has ended up. What's your own personal greatest pride in relation to the Good Friday Agreement? Is it a source of great pride to you? It is perhaps the greatest uh, thing I have greatest pride in that I've done in my life. Uh, and that's one of the reasons why now I spend my time working on other conflicts around the world. Um, I, I think the fact that we had the wisdom to see eventually that uh, this wasn't about an event. It wasn't about just Good Friday. It wasn't about a piece of paper. It was about keeping at it for nine more years. Because remember, when we took off in our helicopters from Stormont on the morning of Good Friday, 
it was another nine years before we had the institutions up and running in a sustainable way. And at the time, I just thought that was a terrible waste. What a, why, why on earth did we do that? But actually, when I look at other agreements, it's that period when you work with people to get the agreement implemented. People don't trust each other because there's a piece of paper. They only trust each other when they take the steps they'd promised to do, whether it's decommissioning weapons or sharing power. And that's what those nine years were about. And I'm glad that we, unlike, you know, think of the Oslo Accords between uh, the Israelis and the Palestinians. Huge celebrations when that was signed, but then no effort to implement it. And as a result, it collapsed into the Second Intifada. And the fact that Tony Blair and Bertie Ahern were able to stay in power for 10 years together and work uh, on this seamlessly the whole way through to make sure not just that we got to the Good Friday Agreement, but it was actually put into practice. I think that was the thing I'm proudest of. Jonathan, thank you very much for your time this morning. That's Jonathan Powell, Chief of Staff to Tony Blair from 97 to 2007, who, of course, was a key negotiator during the Good Friday negotiations. If you want to get in touch, 087-1400-106. Really good to speak to you. Thanks, then. The Anton Savage Show, Saturday morning at 9 on News Talk.